One of the great mysteries of uh, Christianity, or for that matter, any faith tradition, is uh, what is the centerpiece of how we understand our common life together. And I would guess that Christianity understands its common life uh, in terms of relationship. And certainly the great medieval theologians were concerned with the whole issue of what it is about God that uh, necessitates the calling into relationship of the creation that God made and called good. I mention this because right relationship or how we understand this is at the heart of two of the readings for this morning, the one from the book of Job and the other one from the gospel according to St. Mark. We're going to be reading from Job for the next two or three more <coughs> weeks, and so I feel sort of duty-bound to preach about Job. We don't read from Job a great deal, and um, it's probably a good thing for most of us, isn't it? I mean, it, <laughs> this is kind of the blue picture, I think we're getting. Uh, and it's a very difficult uh, uh, book to understand. And so I thought I'd say something about Job first, because today the relationship that's being described is one of absence and disconnection between Job and God. And maybe there's some uh, universals that we can take from this. We'll see. And then in Mark's gospel, we're talking about a relationship, relationships with our stuff. So that has something to do with how we think about relationships, too, and where God is involved in all of this. I mentioned to you last week that the book of Job is extremely well written in the original language. There are more Hebrew words in Job that occur nowhere else than in any other biblical book. So it presents some real challenges for the people who, re who work in that particular area. There is a theory that has a number of adherents that it was not originally written in Hebrew, that it could have been written in Arabic or it could have been written in Greek. But in my researches, the general view is that that's just one of those things you get into if you want to get your PhD, <laughs> right? These days, you have to sort of narrow your focus, don't you? The use of the Yoda subscript in the Epistle of Jude. <laughs> That'll get you, you know, somewhere on this, on this sort of thing. Uh, so that may be something to do with that, but there is some lively scholarship out there about that sort of thing. So today, we have fast-forwarded in the book of Job from the beginning where we see the setup, the rather uh, unfair uh, thing that has happened, the wager between the Satan and God to see if if you afflict Job, that he, if he'll curse God. Satan believes he will, and God, I don't know, agrees to this. Don't ask. And in some ways, this may be a testimony of the importance of biblical scholarship because if there's multiple authorship in a book like this, it could be that you have this originally and then you have other people writing sections that weren't thinking necessarily about the continuity of the cruelty of what has been done. 
but rather a long explication of how we understand the mystery of God, what is the nature of God, how do we understand suffering that appears to be unmerited, and all of the things that are part of uh, the book of Job. So that's a possibility to understand too, or to understand the book in that way. So what's happened is, is that Job is afflicted, he's up against it, and he has a number of associates and colleagues who come and they engage in a number of long discussions with him and debates, a lot of advice giving, a lot of things going on. So we're in chapter 23 now. We started in chapter one, and we begin chapter 23, chapter 24, Job with a long discourse about all of these things. And what Job is talking about today is that he has squared the compass. He has tried to find God in the midst of all this, and he can't. God is not present, God is silent, and he's upset about this, and he uses in the original uh, a lot of terminology that would be terminology used in the ancient Near East in a legal setting, or if you were involved in a court dispute. So he wants to talk uh, uh, about if God would only be present to me or listen to me, I could argue my case. I could argue my case with God and dispute about all of this, why I had been in some way treated unfairly or with no justification. And maybe I can hear from God how come I'm somehow the victim of this horrendous thing. Well, what, what do we do with a text like this? How do we appropriate it? Well, I guess one of the ways would be to say, what do we do when we believe that God is silent in our lives? My experience as a pastor and in my own personal spiritual life, I often don't give a lot of thought to whether or not God is present or absent until I'm up against it and then I want him to be right here with me now, <laughs> handling it. Right? <laughs> You know, we have this idea, of course, our idea. Why would God permit the yada da da da? How many, I bet I've heard that a gazillion times, you know. As though we draw a straight line to everything that God, that, that is done, that God is somehow involved with when we want to, but most of the time we behave as though it's all up to us and we should live according to our own lights. So, it does, you know, it only counts when you have some direct difficulty that you want to have handled in some way. So I read this and think about the, the thing that Job feels when you have these moments at 4 a.m. lying in the bed. You know, Nancy says to me from time to time, will you stop wringing your feet? <laughs> So you're doing some ruminating about what's ahead, what, what's going on, and all of that. Job, by the way, there's a wonderful prayer that we pray every night at Evensong, and we will pray it tonight at Compline. It comes up again. Be our light in the darkness, O Lord, and defend us from every peril and danger of this night through the love of your only Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that prayer terrors. But Job is feeling now that he can't find God, that God is absent, that he's up against it, he feels very anxious, 
and he's terrified. And so he's wondering just exactly what's going to happen. So in one sense, we may use this passage as a accurate description of the spiritual angst that you and I feel on a regular basis about life or can feel when we're under a lot of stress or difficulty. But I would also guess that Christians over the centuries who've read this <laughs> have thought about it in terms of the o their own way of understanding the spiritual life and what is involved in the development or the nurture or the maturing of the soul. You know, for large pieces of parts of, of Christianity, the spiritual life up until recently has been somewhat suspect. I think that the churches of the Reformation have had a great deal of difficulty with the spiritual life. At least I have been told by people who have been in, in those traditions that they have felt somehow that there is some absence of uh, the, the, this, the importance of the spiritual life and the development of practices. And I don't know this for sure, but I suspect it may have something to do with the belief that spirituality understood as the mystical journey that I describe and I will do in a minute again is a work. And if it is, that means anything you do to save yourself won't work because you can't. It's all up to God. So the idea of having some kind of a spiritual life where you put this into your hands has been suspect for many. But in some traditions, including our own, which is kind of a hybrid of both the, the reform tradition and the Catholic tradition, we have once again, certainly for the last uh, 160 years or more, embraced uh, the importance of the spiritual life as something that is valuable and that practices may have some, uh, give us some aid to um, our own spiritual nurture and development and more to the point, to assist us in all of the storms and stresses of life to being able to practice the non-anxious presence. Now I've mentioned to you over and over again that in the Anglican tradition and in the great tradition in this country of American religion, perhaps the dominant spiritual thread that has run through things is what we might call in a scholarly sense pietism. It's the belief in the necessity for the felt presence of God as the authenticating moment whereby you know that God is present. Perhaps one of the ways that you might understand what I mean is if I use the term born again to feel like, you know, you have felt this. The other thread that has run through our tradition and has run through uh, some of the Christian tradition in this country and elsewhere would be called, was by my teacher, Urban Holmes, uh, mysticism. And it's a very problematic term. He defines mysticism, there's a gazillion ways to do this, but he says mysticism is understood as an ascent to God that involves five things, and they're all things that you can put into your hands. And here they are, the purgation, emptying, study, discipline, and patience. And so these things, if you wake up and you say, how am I going to 
uh, connect to God if God appears absent or not, or how do I begin to cultivate in a habitual sense a connection with God? What are some of the things that I might be able to do? Purgation is an old-fashioned word in the spiritual life, and it has to do with purging from you, from yourself, habits of being and relating that keep you from being centered in God and or non-anxious, if you want to use that term. Emptying is learning how to cultivate the ability not to be overcome by your distractions. You know? Nowadays, we, we try to find excuses, don't we, for every kind of um, emotional malady that we think. So uh, uh, being perpetually distracted could be attention deficit disorder. <laughs> right? Or adult attention deficit disorder. Oh, my. <laughs> you mean I've lived all my life and this is why I've always been a fidgeter? <laughs> or can't focus, you know? Or change the subject all the time? Or what is it, right? I don't want to throw cold water on all that uh, in absolute terms, but you know. The fact is, <laughs> the fact is that emptying is the way to, to become less distracted. And sometimes the way through that is what Father Leo said to me many years ago when I made a retreat before I was ordained a deacon at a Benedictine monastery in Three Rivers, Michigan. And I told him, I said, you know, I'm just so distracted. I'm, I'm, I'm constantly, it's just a problem. And he said, well, you know, David, sometimes what you gotta do when you come in the chapel and you kneel down, what you gotta do is just say, well, Here's today my distractions, and move through them. And then maybe you get out the other side, and sometimes, in fact, you do. The dean of my seminary, when I first went to Neshota, was a very austere and somewhat difficult man named Donald Parsons. He's the retired bishop of Quincy. Oh, oh yes, oh. <laughs> <laughs> He was a he was very good at the. <coughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> Every day, thirty minutes before even song, he would go into the chapel and pray before the blessed sacrament. In the in the Corpus Christi chapel, you kneel down and say a prayer. And in the class one day, here's a guy who I thought, boy, he's taking no prisoners. He's an austere one. He said, though, one day I went in. He was talking about this. He said, I went in before even song. I knelt down in the chapel. And as soon as my knees hit the thing, immediately what popped into my head was, well, there's nobody here but us chickens. <laughs> <laughs> kind of helped me out <laughs> because that's sort of how I felt a lot. So emptying is learning how somehow to deal with that. Study is becoming the best student you can be of all the things you need to be a student of. And in Christian terms and in spiritual terms, we mean the spiritual life. And since I'm very broad in my definition and use Thomas Merton a lot, the spiritual life is life. You need to be a student about stuff that's important. So all of us need to be. And certainly we need to keep up in our fields. And we need to be aware of what in the world is going on. 
not because we need to embrace the particular uh, idea de jour, but because we at least need to know what, what the way this pattern of thinking is going, you know? I have to perpetually on a daily basis resist being a curmudgeon because I feel that there is, in this culture, there are things that have just transpired over the last 25 or 30 years that make my hair stand on it. <laughs> and there is a level of cluelessness out there that is just beggars the imagination. <laughs> I mean about how to live life. The ordinary commonplace, get up and brush your teeth. At that level, at that level, we're up against it. And you can see it on CNN with people reading the, the news and making these horrendous uh, gaffes continuously. <laughs> you know, I never thought I'd say this. I used to get so tired of hearing my parents do it. You know, so maybe that's uh, something that we need to say about that. But being a student is important. Discipline is the cultivation of the interior self-regulation the moderation of instinctual drives that is necessary for everybody to function at a high level. And so you and I need to learn how to do that. <coughs> and uh, this is easy to say and hard to do. But it is important for us to be able to learn how to do that and to be disciplined. And finally, patience is the hardest one of all because that means that all this work and Job squaring the compass and looking around, God's revelation is going to come in God's own time. Now what I learned in seminary and what I'm interested in in terms of the history of the spiritual life and the development of the spiritual life is that what is being described in Job could be understood by some of the later Christian writers on the spiritual life, say in the 16th century, as the dark night of the soul. And that means that in the course of coming to some degree of spiritual maturity, you are in a condition where you don't know where in the world you are, whether God is in this, and whether your thinking or your best thinking is working at all, if at all. And you may, in fact, have had some experience of seeing your best thinking produce circumstances that you would rather not have had produced. Right? And so... Uh, the threefold way of talking about the mystical journey in the old way was the purgative, the illuminative, and the unitive way. And so oddly enough, what Job is describing here is the illuminative way. Because he's in the dark. You know, illuminate, no illumination. In fact, St. John of the Cross who was a great friend of Teresa of Avila. You ever heard of her? No. Very fine. There's a wonderful biography out about her that was written about three or four years ago, and it has a portrait that was painted of her when she was a young woman. She was a stunner. <coughs> I've, you know, you wouldn't put those two necessarily together, right? <laughs> <laughs> She was. St. John of the Cross said that the dark night of the soul for him was brightness. It was so bright he couldn't see. He had to close his eyes, which then became dark, right? 
So sometimes the illuminative processes are, are uh, mysterious. I mention this because Job is important to talk about because it has something to do with the mystery of God. And whether or not God does hide from us, whether God can hide from us, and how in some way, if we're made in God's image and God needs us to fulfill his purposes for the cosmos, how do we understand cooperating with this divine initiative? And sometimes in the course of this, it means we're going to go down some roads that may appear to be pretty obscure. And that at the end, we will see maybe more clearly than we had before. And we'll be unified with God's purposes, the unitive part of all of this. There are some biblical commentators who hate the idea in a couple of weeks that the book of Job comes out okay that we ought to be sort of marinating in our adversity, you know, and some people like that. They prefer it, you know. So it's important to know that that's all part of the spiritual life. Mystery does not mean something that is only, that is something that is unknowable. It means something that is infinitely knowable. So as we mature and, and gain the practical wisdom that we've been talking a lot about over the last several weeks, we begin to understand something about how to live a life congruent with God's purposes. Wisdom is the accumulated knowledge gained from dealing with adversity. So if you were to say, what is wisdom? And you meet and talk to people who appear to have some wisdom, it often is because they've experienced a lot and they have learned some things. People who don't learn from their experience will get nowhere. And you waste your time trying to work with anybody who doesn't learn from experience. In the gospel, Mark, uh, Mark has Jesus today speaking about uh, the right use of possessions, the relationship with our possessions. And uh, there's a floating uh, quote that seems to run through the Gospels, the first will be last, the last, that sort of appears uh, in a lot of different places. So no doubt it's uh, something Jesus said. But in the beginning, he, uh, we have the first section. These are usually three separate things that the, when the editing happened, that's how they got placed in the Gospel. So it's about the rich young man. And the rich young man comes to Jesus and asks him what he must do to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And uh, Jesus tells him he has to obey the commandments. And he sort of by memory rattles off the commandments. It's not a complete list, but he gets most of them. <coughs> and this guy says, well, I've done all these things since I was a youth. He said, well, you lack one thing. What you need to do is sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And it says he went away greedy because he had many possessions. Uh, I think this culture is a lot like the, the uh, story you all probably have heard about the monkey who uh, reached into the jar 
to get the nut and got the, the hand around the nut and then found that it couldn't get its hand out of the jar. It could get it out of the jar if it let go of the nut. But the will to let go of the nut was lacking. I think about this because when I was about 10, I was at my grandparents' house washing the dishes and my grandmother had one of those uh, uh, percolator coffee pots then that had a top like this. I had my hand inside it and I was scrubbing out the bottom of the thing and scrubbing the inside of it. And as I pulled my hand, I couldn't get my hand out of the coffee pot. And so I looked over at my grandfather and said, I can't get my hand out. My grandfather said to me, well, David, I guess you're going to have to be that way for the rest of your life. <laughs> I think sometimes, you know, you got hold of that nut, you may end up being that way for the rest of your life. You don't even know there's a jar around your hand, right? <laughs> so this has something to do with uh, right relationship. I read a commentary about this passage, and um, let me read to you. I thought it was good, so I'm going to read it to you. Jesus is not adding anything to be done by a man who has been doing his religion since his youth. On the contrary, Jesus is calling him to cast aside all other dependencies and in radical trust stand bare before the God who gives. In other words, this is a call to discipleship. There is here no praise of poverty or an attack on the wealthy. The world's goods can be passed around without love or trust in God, and many plans for such have been devised. But, there stands a, but here stands a person whose life has been defined by wealth, and sadly he will not accept a new definition of himself, a man rich before God. In a very rare use of the word love in Mark, the writer says Jesus loved him. The man asked a big question, and he got a big answer. Small answers to ultimate questions are insulting. He was allowed to say no to Jesus, where there is no room to say no. A yes is meaningless. So this is all about something more than his stuff, isn't it? It's about the web of prestige and self-aggrandizement and power and privilege that attach to prosperity for many. You know, those of us who were raised in somewhat privileged circumstances don't even remember the privileges we had. We just assumed them. And we assumed that everybody ought to operate on the basis of the privileges that we had. Right? Not knowing that those privileges were not something they were able to do. This is probably not the right thing to say, but I remember my grandfather years ago, way long, 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 long time ago, on Maiden Lane in San Francisco at the store, and the police would come down into the lane. There was a promenade where you'd shut the lane off from 11 till 2, 
And so uh, the, the, the merchants and everybody else would unload their stuff, and then they could drive out the <laughs> open end of one of the ends of uh, Maiden Lane, but they chained it. <coughs> but before that, the cops, if they were feeling ambitious or needed to fill a quota, they <coughs> tagged it, even if you had a commercial plate sometimes. And uh, it would get to the point where it was very, it wasn't tolerable. And I was in the office one day working it up in the front <coughs> office, and my grandfather walked up there, and he goes to get in the back of his office, and he phoned up Tom Mellon, the city administrative officer for San Francisco. He said, you know, Tom, the police are coming down in the lane too much. They're tagging too many of these cars. Can you please tell them to lay off? <laughs> you wouldn't see a cop there for six weeks. <laughs> I'm serious. I thought, well, how do I get in on this? <laughs> it took me a while to cop to the fact that that isn't right. But you assume it. And I think what's, what's being condemned here is that lack of self-knowledge or knowledge about the pernicious effects or the misuse of the privileges and the abilities that we all uh, receive, often through this serendipity that I've mentioned recently a great deal that we don't give our due credit to. You know, you get born in the right place at the right time or in the right family and you get to do stuff. And a lot of people don't. Most people don't. So we need to be aware of that. Well, what's the cure? The cure is the cultivation in the spiritual life of the generous impulse that I think is natural to every human person. And if we believe that we are made in God's image, then that kind of generosity is the thing that we can all touch, even if it appears to have been obscured over a long period of time of you know, self-seeking, ambition, a whole lot of other things from a legitimate point of view of saying, I'm going to make something of myself and I'm going to work like the devil in order to be able to do all that. To, to use all of my enterprising abilities to become successful. God doesn't condemn that. But what is involved here is the learning how to, to use this with some degree of generosity. I got to thinking as I read this, no, the lectionary uses all this. This is stewardship time. Ooh, right? <laughs> so it might have something to do with that, right? Generosity. And the idea of how we understand that in terms of the use of our stuff. So this week, here's the thing, trying to connect Job and Mark together. We believe in a God who knows each of us by name, who is not capricious, and who loves, accepts, and forgives us unconditionally. And that that's the default position of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by virtue of that, that vests each one of us with the ability to exercise the generous impulse and to practice that in relationship. So this week, see if you're able to do that and see if you might find it a little bit easier to let go of the nut. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Cafe.